0: It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, David Gallup, who is president of the World Service Authority, a global public service human rights organization founded in 1954. Previously, he was a dean's fellow at the Washington College of Law's International Human Rights Law Clinic, where he researched asylum and international human rights issues, developed and maintained a human rights document library, coordinated a human rights education workshop, and represented asylum applicants for 15 years david gallup was the secretary of the un association task forces on un restructuring and on cultures of peace gallup wrote several chapters in a un association report entitled restructuring the un to meet 21st century global needs he's a legal columnist for world citizen news david gallup thank you very much for coming on talk nation radio you're welcome. My pleasure. Uh, great to have you on here. Uh, tell us a little bit about the World Service Authority.
1: Yes, World Service Authority was founded in 1954 by a man named Gary Davis, who we can talk about in, in just a little bit. The main focus of World Service Authority is to educate about, to promote, and to implement human rights, world citizenship, world law, and to uh, for all of us to come together to create the institutions of law that we would need at the world level to help us all as one human family to live together peacefully
0: some people would uh, suggest we have those in the u.n others would suggest we don't want those at all what's your what's your your vision
1: well the u.n was founded to rid the world of the scourge of war that's what the preamble of the u.n charter mentions but there have been a couple hundred wars since 1950 <laughs> uh, at least all around the world so unfortunately the u.n has not been able to achieve the task it was created for, not to say that the different uh, administrative agencies of the U.N. aren't doing good things, because they are. They're helping people on the ground in the here and now. uh, But I would say more as a band-aid, you might say, uh, to patch up the the problems that are ongoing and not really to get to the root causes of violence and oppression and uh, human human rights uh, problems for people uh, long-term. So the U.N., although... uh, uh, it is, well, it's a, a na- nation-state system uh, institution. And unfortunately, because of the U.N. Security Council and the veil of national sovereignty, it really becomes almost like a smokescreen for the nation states to continue to wage war. So I, I would say that what we're trying to do at, at World Service Authority, how is it different, how are we offering something new and different, is that we're offering uh, uh, to create, with the help of the global public, institutions that come from us, the people, as world citizens, and so they will be global uh, institutions, not ones that are beholden to any one nation or, or people, but to all of humanity and to the earth, and the UN can't do that at this point in the way it's structured.
0: So you would maybe not put the five biggest weapons dealers on the planet uh, in charge with special veto powers and privileges over, <laughs> the, over the other nations in an ideal model uh, world system. Uh, well, w- there's, there's a lot to talk about in terms of ways to reform the UN and ways to replace it. Um, but you mentioned Gary Davis, who should be familiar to some listeners of this program and to uh, people who have seen a film about him, World Beyond War, which I work for uh, organized. Uh, events screening that film. Can you can you remind people a little bit about who Gary Davis was?
1: Sure. Well, Gary Davis uh, was a young Broadway actor uh, in uh, the early 1940s. His brother went off to war and was on his battleship in Salerno in Italy, and his battleship was bombed, and his brother was killed, and that was really devastating to Gary. He his big brother was his his mentor his person he was going to write comedy shows and comedy acts with and, and continue acting with. But once he was killed, Gary felt really anger and, and then vengeance. and He felt like he needed to join the, the Air Force and bomb Hitler's war factories. Uh, but once he was up in the airplane in his B-17 bomber, he looked down as the bombs were falling, and he knew that these bombs were falling on not just supposedly military, legitimate quote-unquote military targets, but they were killing women, men, children. Uh, uh, you know, civilians, uh, and, and he was really repulsed. His one of, and one of his missions, his plane was, was shot down. He was interned in a internment camp from which he escaped, but so when he came back from the war, he was very disillusioned with the entire nation-state system that forced him to kill his, his fellow humans who he would rather have been making laugh than killing. So he said, I need to do something bold. I need to do something big. I need to get out of this system. Uh, he, you know, he had post-traumatic stress from the war, and he had read a book called Anatomy of Peace by Emery Reeves. And he had uh, begun uh, looking into what uh, a group at that point was, which was called the World Federalist Association, uh, was was working on to try to create what you might call a world federal government, sort of like what, what we have here in the United States or what, what exists in Western Europe, but at the global level. And he said, okay, this is interesting, but he had also heard of a young man who had gone back, uh, or gone back to Europe, gone to Germany to help rebuild the the churches that he had destroyed, and Gary felt, well, look, uh, I did a lot more than than just destroy some some churches. I killed a lot of people. I, I need uh, I, instead of having vengeance anymore, he felt remorse and and he needed to, to make a change. So he flew off to Paris. Uh, tried to renounce his U.S. citizenship initially by handing in his U.S. passport and be, being given the oath of renunciation, but his father, who was a wealthy band leader, an orchestra leader, didn't want him to do it, and he was telexing the, the, the consulate saying, "Don't let him do it. Uh, he's just shell shocked from the war." But finally, a few days later, when he came back to the consulate, uh, the woman in the in the consular section said, "Well, what are you doing back here, Mr. Davis?" He said, "Well, I'm here to renounce." And she said, "Well, are you sure? Uh, have you thought about this?" So in any case, finally he said, look, if you don't give me the oath of renunciation immediately, I'm going to call your superiors in Washington, D.C., and report dereliction of duty. So she scrambled, looking around in her desk for the oath of renunciation. He raised his right hand. He he was given the oath. But of course, the second he stepped out of the U.S. Embassy in Paris, he was in France illegally because he had to give up all his documents. He, become, he became undocumented, like the almost 70 million people now who are either stateless, who are refugees, or either internally or externally um, uh, around the world today, because of uh, oftentimes due to war uh, and oppression, but even now, of course, due to environmental degradation. So he had to come up with a. He had to imagine, like, like uh, his, one of his favorite people to quote was Albert Einstein, who, who says, Imagination is more important than intelligence. He said, I had to imagine a world where I, as an undocumented, uh, basically, uh, I don't like to call him stateless, I like to call him world full, because he was full of love for the world. He had to come up with a a way to uh, govern himself, and then how he could interact with the rest of the world, even though they wanted to see him as as, uh, nothing, as persona non grata, because he had no documents. And that was what led him to, uh, several years later, after having been arrested about 20 different times just for having no documents, to create the World Passport, to create World Service Authority, and to create, uh, well, a predecessor to the world, this World Citizen Government was an institution where he helped to register uh, almost a million people as officially as World Citizens. Now, uh, but it wasn't a, that wasn't enough. And he said, look, we need not just a registry of World Citizens, we need a, a government of by and for the people of the world. So with that, the basis of those almost million people, and and Gary once told me that, he said, David, it wasn't just about the million people who registered. There was almost seven or eight million other people who sent postcards of support to our offices in Paris uh, during the years of 1949 through 1951 in support, even if they didn't themselves register. So there was a big outcry for something different, even something beyond the United Nations, because at that point it was a, a, you know, I'd say a, a, a... Baby organization. People weren't sure what what would become of it, even a few years later. So, uh, he created. He said, "We need this world a world citizen government," and that's what he helped to found with other world citizens in 1953, and then World Service Authority in 1954 to raise awareness. And you might still say we're at the initial stages of this whole process, this whole movement. Gary Gary himself might not have called what we're trying to do to promote world citizenship as a movement. He would probably simply say, like he did in that film, The World is My Country, Uh, I'm just one world citizen among a community of world citizens. But the reason he renounced was to say, well, no one else besides me really has to renounce. They just have to accept something higher, an allegiance to humanity and the earth. And it's at that level where we can work together as human beings, first and foremost, not uh, based upon some kind of arbitrary uh, separation of people, usually that was created by wealthy white men who, who separated the planet into different uh, places for their own economic, usually, benefit, uh, but to come together as one human family. And, and I think it took uh, a few events, we're, st- we're still not there yet, but a few sort of revolutionary events, like the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, to see that humanity had the power just to destroy humanity and the Earth. That was one awakening moment, and I would say maybe another was in the, uh, what, what, I guess it was the early 1950s or, or mid, when satellites were put out uh, around the Earth, and with those satellites we could attach cameras and look back at the Earth and see the Earth really is one, uh, and, and that we're, it's, it's, it's not really separated. I mean, any astronaut you, who goes out into space knows when they look at the Earth, they look back and they say, they know that it's that it's one Earth, and yeah. the folly and ridiculousness uh, of our separating ourselves is really what world service authority is trying to educate people about and what this world citizen government is trying to act as a as a counterpoint to the the you might say not uh... the neo-nationalism that we we, we see as fervent nowadays but i think that's really just only a temporary a temporary uh, concern i think i think people will be coming towards this understanding or appreciation of of the one world that we have we have to if we're going to survive whether it's beyond war or whether it's beyond environmental degradation we ha- we have to come together
0: well, it's going to have to be both of those things or we won't survive. We're speaking with David Gallup, who is president of the World Service Authority. It, it seems that education, that getting people just to think differently about who they are, to think of themselves as citizens of the world rather than just of a country or some smaller uh, jurisdiction uh, is a big part of this. How how does one go about getting a world passport and, and what happens to you when you do? How, how does it change your your way of looking at things.
1: Well, the point of the World Passport, at least initially for Gary Davis and for other stateless or undocumented people, was because if you had a document in your hand, what that meant is a border official couldn't just outright say no to you. They would have to, it became like a uh, a tool for someone to say, look, I do exist. Uh, Let me just tell you a quick story. I was uh, taking a tour of the uh, uh, European court uh, in in Strasbourg in, in France several years ago, and it was just about five or six of us, and the tour guide asked where we were all from. And she got to me. I was the last person she asked, and I said, Planet Earth. She kind of laughed, and she was like, well, no, but you have to be from somewhere. <laughs> so I got out my World Citizen card, which is a separate document from our world passport that we issue, and I showed it to her. She's like, oh, my gosh, I guess, I guess you are from Planet Earth. And what was funny to me, and then she said, well, where can I get one of those? And she said, after the tour, tell me. So, uh, but then what was funny to me is that she put more credence in that paper, plasticized paper document that she did in me telling her that I was from planet Earth, which is kind of ridiculous. So you, uh, you might say uh, one of the reasons why Gary Davis created the World of Passport was really to help us to move beyond the idea of papering or documenting ourselves. Because even a piece of paper, you, you might say, separates us from our fellow uh, humans. Uh, and it's, it's, so the point is to get to a situation where we don't need uh, documents anymore to say, I am human, I have human rights. I have the right to travel freely on my own planet. I have the right to identify myself so that other human rights that I have will be met. Well, so that's really the principle behind the the World Passport. Uh, You could say that there is actual law that reaffirms it, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 13, affirms the right to freedom of travel, Article 12 of the International Covenant on Civil and political rights affirms the right to freedom of travel. Both affirm the right to identification as individuals before the law. So there is a legal basis already for this world passport. Besides the legal precedent for the world passport, there was actually a passport created by a Norwegian explorer named Friedhof Nansen between World War I and World War Two. And his office, the Nansen Passport Office, documented many of the uh, uh, stateless uh, people who had fled various countries after World War one and his office won the Nobel Peace Prize for doing so. Uh, you could say that the world passport is actually the successor uh, document to the Friedhof Nansen passport. And many people who are stateless and undocumented, the, the millions of people around the world, uh, are seeing this as as a document that could help in that kind of situation.
0: It, it conceivably could be a way for those who do have and are keeping their national passports uh, to to form solidarity with people who are, are stateless and undocumented. I've, I've, I've got in my hand, I just took out of my wallet a card with my photo that says, this is to certify that David Swanson is a member of the human race with all the rights, responsibilities, and privileges thereof. Uh, where, uh, again, where can people, a web address or how do you go about, where can people get this kind of card and a world passport and world citizenship? Well, it's a
1: simple process. People can apply to the World Service Authority either by submitting an application form through the mail or even through email. We have a website, worldservice.org, where people can download the application forms, fill them out, and as I said, send them in. Or if people will email us to info at worldservice.org, we can send a PDF Application form in multiple languages, as well as an explanation of all the uh, procedures for applying, but simply people have to provide their personal data, uh, like their names, their birthdays, their birthplace, height eye color, etc. Uh, we vet each applicant through our compliance uh, program, and then once that's done, we issue the documents and send them to most anywhere in the world so once again it's a simple process to get either the world passport to get the uh, world citizen card and certificate. We also offer other documents that affirm Other human rights that have been stated in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, for example, uh, our World Identification Card, which affirms Article 6 of the Declaration, which states that everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law, we offer a world... Media Association press card for people in the professional media. We offer a world birth certificate. quick example of that, there was a child born of non-ethnically Russian parents in Russia, and the child was having trouble simply because he, the Russian government would not give him, because of discrimination, a birth certificate. He couldn't go to school. He couldn't go to the doctor and get his inoculations. But once we issued him the world birth certificate, the local authorities accepted that. He was able to go to school and able to see a doctor. So it's amazing how just by providing uh, a documentation to someone who, who can't get one or who is rejected by a government because of discrimination, how, how receiving these documents can really change their lives.
0: That's wonderful. It makes those Russian authorities look pretty horrible and pretty great at the same time there. Um, right. Uh, right. <laughs> um, the, uh, I, I want to mention also that World Beyond War very soon is going to be uh, working with the World Service uh, Authority to let people who become donors to world beyond war get a world passport and so we are very grateful uh to you for letting us uh set that up um i think it's a it's a great thing and and, and also you're going to be speaking david gallup you're going to be speaking at world beyond wars uh annual conference coming up in september in toronto uh and speaking on the on the topic of of world government, or well, tell us what you're what you're planning for that workshop.
1: <laughs> well, so I'm I'm trying to keep it a little bit secretive here, David, because uh, I'm going to ask the the basic question. I'm going to start with is what are the most important questions of the 21st century? But I I, I don't tell you what those questions are yet, and I'm also hoping that participants in the event will come to the event with ideas themselves of what they think are the most important questions of the 21st century. I can tell you, of course, these will be questions about identity, questions about law, questions about governing our structures and and how we behave and what I love about how we're co-promoting World Beyond War and World Service Authority together, not only at the No War 2018 conference, but also through the website and with the World Passport, is because what you are doing and what we're doing is so dear to my heart and so dear to your heart, so dear to the heart of Gary Davis, the founder of World Service Authority, which is to say, look we can have a world beyond war. We just have to create it. We have to develop the, the institutions and a, a common world law that doesn't maybe fully exist yet, where there's, there's a thought process in this area, but we can come together and create it. I mean, we, we want a, a world where uh, if you kill someone on the streets of Washington, D.C., if you kill someone on the, on, on the streets of Baghdad, you cannot get away with it just because you're wearing a military uniform. I mean, uh, uh, with that, this lack of common world law and the lack of of law between nation states is the breeding ground for war. So I mean, uh, I'm always impressed to see, you know, what, what you've written, like when the world outlawed war about the Kellogg-Briand uh, Pact, uh, which which still has never, as you know, has never been overruled. The real war is illegal now, <laughs>
0: <Indeed>. <laughs> but
1: the, but the war game continues. So this is uh, yeah. uh, so some of these issues will, of course, will come up in what I'm going to be talking about uh, at the conference uh, at the end of September.
0: Well, I, I'll make you a little wager. I'll make a prediction on what pe- uh, people are going to say and you can ask uh, the, the people in the workshop whether they heard this this show and then okay. you know uh, rule them out uh, but uh, cuz they had time to prepare but i predict people are going to uh, many are going to say the big question is will we survive militarism and will we survive environmental destruction uh, and, and and these to my mind anyway seem like some of the big reasons to have world government? Uh, I mean, what do you what do you envision structurally? What are we aiming for in terms of of a system of, of world law or world institutions that can actually address these kind of, of global problems?
1: Well, so I'm going to give you some general terms here, but then I'm going to back it up with a specific, which I think will help everyone listening to know what I mean. Uh, because, uh, okay, well, so uh, when you say world government, People are like, what What could that be? What would that mean? They think it might be something tyrannical or dictatorial. Well, that's not at all. When we say the term world government, we mean a world citizen government, a, a government of, by, and for the people of the world, which would have appropriate checks and balances, which would mean – in my understanding, a world parliament, for example, or a world congress, where the the people of the world get to decide what laws we are going to make to create that common world law, to to outlaw, you say, uh, and enforce the outlawing of of war and and killing or aggression. We need a World Court of Human Rights, which doesn't yet exist, but I'm working on that process with uh, an attorney up in Burlington, Vermont, who's helped us to draft a new statute for our world court, and we're going to hopefully also in Canada, uh, perhaps in November, have uh, an event where we'll be having a workshop about that World Court of Human Rights. Also, the idea of having a world peace or police force, sort of using the Gandhi and Satyagraha movement of nonviolence to act as a uh, go-between amongst people so that Uh, conflict will not erupt into violence, to give people tools and arbitration and and other ways to handle their uh, uh, frustrations rather than lashing out at one another. So that's just, obviously seems like almost utopian, you know, for us to be able to create those. But let me give you an example down to earth here that explains that we already have, in a sense, world government functioning, and you may not even know it. Have you heard of something called the Universal Postal Union
0: I think I have, but I couldn't describe it to you.
1: (laughs) Okay. The Universal Postal Union is the international organization which is affiliated with the United Nations that actually sets the rules through domestic and international mail manuals on how a piece of mail gets from one part of the planet to the other. There are rules. Now, if I asked you, uh, do you know who the Secretary General is of the Universal Postal Union? I would think you probably don't, right? You know who that is.
0: Right? I do not know.
1: Yeah, it's a guy named Bashar Hussein. And the only reason I know that is because every time I talk about this, I look it up and make sure it's still him. <laughs> uh, but I wouldn't really care who is the head of this Universal Postal Union as long as if I'm sending a letter or a uh, something through the mail to my Aunt Millie in Tokyo, Japan, for example. If she gets the letter, I've paid my little fee, you might say, which is the postage stamp, so she gets it. I've exercised my right to freedom of expression, and she receives it. Do I care who's running that Universal Postal Union as long as uh, my fee that I've paid has been successful and my document or my letter gets there. No, I don't really care who's running it. So we see world government, whether it's through a, through a world parliament or world congress or uh, world peace or police force or, or even some kind of world executive council, like you might say uh, Switzerland has, where there's seven heads of state, you might say, that, that run through each year, the, the, next, what, the next person sort of takes over. We don't really care who is running our government as long as they're doing a good job and fulfilling what we want them to do, uh, and that's, so I see that sort of the Universal Postal Union already is a government of, a world government of the post, you might say. It's functioning in the background, it's acting as a service, and that's why the Postal Service is called a service, because all government should be a service to you and me and to everyone. It should be fulfilling, helping us to fulfill what we can't do as individuals or even even smaller communities. It can only hopefully help us with what we need to do uh, on the world or global level. So, as long as we can have some kind of governmental structures that help us serve us and uh, help us to achieve what we want to achieve as, as the people of the world and running in the background that 's all we want i mean we, we don 't want it to tell us you know, what, everything that we want or should be able to do in our local communities, and this is why there should be a principle of also of subsidiarity, meaning that there, gov- there should be more local and more global uh, systems of governing which which we 're not in that situation now, and that 's what we 're hoping through. Uh, World Service Authority to to raise the awareness that we can do this. But like I said, that with the Universal Postal Union, it's already functioning. We just uh, need to bring it to the level of of politics, not just the post office.
0: I I, I do recall having heard that example uh, somewhere when you bring it up, and it's a good one, and I'm with you. But let me just play devil's advocate for sure. a few minutes. We have left. Sure. There's probably not a ton of money to be made off uh, creating disorganized, uh, ineffective mail services. There's 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 a great deal of money to be made from destroying the natural environment of the earth and from promoting wars. So how, do you, uh, how do you achieve at a larger level than anyone has achieved it thus far, uh, or even attempted it, uh, a, a democracy uh, of billions of people that can resist corruption when these little national governments have such a hard time resisting corruption?
1: Yes. Well, I would say that we have to look at the world situation we're in. And there was a, um, a book by, I think it was Wendell Wilkie, who called One World or None. And, and unfortunately, I think we're at that stage. And you you bre- mentioned this already about the kind of questions that people might be bringing up at my, one of the most important questions of, uh, of the 21st Century Workshop is, is survival of humanity and the Earth. And if the Earth dies, we die with it. So I think it's the job of uh, World Beyond War and World Service Authority and other, not just... Uh, Peace action groups, but even environmental groups, for all of us to come together and speak as with one voice to say if we are going to survive both the human destruction that we basically allow corporations and national governments to continue, uh, or if we're going to uh, avoid the environmental degradation that we also corporations and governments are are, are waging, you might say against the, the humanity in the earth. Then we have to. Devise these systems. It's basically we don't have a choice at, at this point. We have to choose. We have to choose one world, or we'll have none. And uh, once again, um, uh, if the Earth dies, uh, we all die with it, and and, and that, that doesn't make sense. So uh, we have to. Allow corporations to understand, just like they've started to understand that going green actually can make them more profitable. We need to know how making uh, corporations—I don't know what the color is—it blue—for <laughs> making the, the uh, uh, corporations and governments going uh, towards peace. Um, how did how do they see that as profitable? But uh, but also profitable. Uh, we have to look at even the profit motive and the economy of the, of the world and question even those principles. Like, do we want uh, you know forever to have? Growth and more growth and more growth. That's also destroying the planet. So we have to. so much, David. I, I, it was just a few minutes here. I, I cannot get into all the economic, social, and and governmental uh, concerns that all really need to are linked together. Uh, that we have to think about to, to save our world, to save humanity. And, and and once again, if you look, there's a great and I think you can still find it online. It's the document called uh, "What the World Wants and How to Pay for It," and it's a document uh, which. a whole Has a whole bunch of little boxes on it, and it covers a whole 8.5 by 11 sheet. But the bottom uh, corner, the the one quadrant of that one fourth of that page, is is blocked off in little squares, or bigger squares, actually. And basically what that's saying is, if we move towards creating livingry instead of weaponry, like Buckminster Fuller would say, and if we spend even one-fourth of the amount of money that national governments and even corporations are spending on preparing for and waging war, we can use just even one-fourth of that money to prepare for And wage peace. Uh, And when I say peace, I mean environmental peace, not just, you know, national peace or or economic peace. Uh, It's a a
0: combination of all. I couldn't agree more. Very well said. Wish we could continue. We will continue uh, in person in Toronto at World Beyond Wars uh, conference, which everyone is welcome to sign up and attend or catch the live stream. David Gallup is the president of the World Service Authority. We'll have links up at talknationradio.org. David Gallup, thank you for coming on the Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.